I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dave Laird. And this is a special, exclusive, question and answer edition of The Great Concavity. Awesome. This is episode 11. So welcome, Matt. Welcome, everybody, to our Q&A episode. We've been talking quite a while about this episode, Matt. I think it goes back into January, Dave. We've been <laughs> soliciting questions, yeah. and we kind of got sidetracked a little bit in February. I know you were on vacation. I don't know if you want to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I was but... in Nicaragua for two weeks, and that was cool. You posted um, some really amazing photos from there. Yeah, that was good. So for the inter- Infinite Winter... Uh, guide which I've been posting uh, every Friday for. I posted a few pictures from that trip, and yeah, it was it was pretty pretty good, uh, <laughs> pretty balmy, and it was definitely a nice respite from the Canadian very gray winter uh, that we get in this part of the country. So that was great. I was with uh, our two of our really good friends, another couple, Nathan and Joanna, were with us, and Nathan and my wife Rachel were both reading Infinite Jest on the trip. And I went sort of covert and read it on the iPad because uh, oh. I didn't want like three people in a row at the airport to be reading the same big book, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So that was good. Got lots of reading in, lots of relaxation. Yeah, your trip, it made me think of a line from Ferris Bueller where he's talking about the Ferrari and he says, if you have the means, I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's good. There's also like that really interesting... Uh, phenomenon of being a tourist as well and Wallace you know the quote from Consider the Lobster where he says that as a tourist you're economically significant but existentially loathsome an insect on a dead thing just like that's all I can think about when I travel you know especially to countries where I don't speak the language and I kind of you know expect that people will speak English and yeah he talks about that when he went to Italy and there's a little clip of him where he talks about being in Italy and not being able to speak the language it's really great yeah. So we've been so we've been soliciting questions for weeks and weeks, and now we finally have a long list of them. We're going to try to work through as many as we can uh, on this episode. So apo- apologies if we don't get to them all. I don't yeah. know how long it's going to take, but we have a lot <laughs> of good questions, and, and I really want to jump in. Yeah, we got some great stuff. Some of these questions that came in are like way over my head, so we'll see how we go here. <laughs> so who's our first question from, Matt? It looks like it's from Alex Sinclair. Alex Sinclair, our friend from uh, from Ireland, I believe, is in Dublin. He writes about the NFL. Yeah, that's right. American football, he said, not European football. Right, and his question is sports-related. So his question is, David Foster Wallace was a great writer, but was he a great sports writer? I like this question. You know, my take on that is that I think that he was a great sports writer for tennis and that... <laughs> He he really dug deep on that one issue, right? Yeah. I think anyone who writes about tennis now sort of writes a little bit in his shadow. I mean, I don't know a lot about like the history of tennis writing yeah. or like the great tennis writers of the world or whatever, but I know that David Foster Wallace will be in that conversation for mm-hmm. a very long time, partly due yeah. to the, the Roger Federer piece and partly yeah. due to a lot of the stuff that's in Infinite Jest. So I, I think it's very, very fair to say that he is one of our great tennis writers. I don't know if he is 
a great sports writer per se, but yeah. I, I really learned a lot from him about what he wrote in um, about Tracy Austin and about right, yeah. writing about sports memoirs in particular. But I mean, mm-hmm. everyone seems to revere the Federer piece, and you know, I've read it yeah. many times, and like it's very descriptive in the way he describes Federer's <laughs> um, forehand, especially in his backhand. Yeah, um, the liquid whip. Oh yeah, I mean that's stuck. That Federer is going to live with that the rest of his life. Yeah, and and so I think, you know, I I look at other writers who've written about baseball. Don DeLillo wrote about football yeah, yeah. and baseball. Yeah, uh, Underworld in end Zone. Yeah, and in end Zone he wrote about football, and then he wrote about baseball and Underworld. Yeah, and you know John Updike wrote a whole bunch of stories about golf. He wrote a ton of stuff about oh, golf. Really? Um, <laughs> I guess that's not surprising, given his socioeconomic uh, biography, you know. Hey, it was it's a different world, you know. <laughs> but those guys who wrote about, I mean, baseball seems very literary. Wallace wasn't that interested in baseball. Um, you know, he was very just interested in tennis. So it's in a way, it's like one dimensional. What do you think? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, I like I don't have a lot of sports. Um, I haven't read a lot of sports writing other than fiction. So like you mentioned, uh, Underworld by DeLillo, obviously Infinite Jest and Wallace's other work on tennis. Uh, the Brothers K by David James Duncan. Have you read that book? It's one of my favorite novels of all time. I have not read it. Not so, read it. Okay, so it's about a, like a dad who used to play sort of pro baseball and, and his family of brothers growing up sort of in the 50s, 60s uh, in Washington State. Uh, so it's kind of like, obviously from the title, it's, it's sort of predicated on Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Um, but it's lots of lots of really great stuff about baseball in that book too. So other than like literary stuff about sports, I don't really read a lot of sports writing. So uh, for me, uh, as a skateboarder, like my background is as a skateboarder, you know, since eighth grade. So I became very um, disenfranchised with team sports, you know, being kind of like of that skateboarder type philosophy. Um, and it wasn't until actually I read Infinite Jest that I started thinking like. You know, tennis actually sounds kind of kind of rad, and maybe there's something to this. And then right after I read Infinite Jest, I read the Federer piece. And I was like, oh man, okay, I gotta start. I gotta start getting out on the court. So I started playing tennis with some friends, and and fell in love with it really fast. And started watching ATP tennis as well. You know, mostly because of the Federer piece. And since I've gone to several live ATP events and seen Federer play in real life, and um, you know, I just camp out for two weeks every time there's a major. Uh, and it's entirely thanks to Wallace's attention to, to writing about tennis. So without a whole lot of other background in sports writing, I would say, yes, David Foster Wallace is a great sports writer. <laughs> so there's also the whole thing about Wallace actually getting an interview with Roger Federer. Have you been able to track down a transcript of that ever? I've tried and I can't actually find out a literal transcript of it. I don't know that such a thing exists. Yeah, I don't think so. But man, I would love to read that. I heard it was kind of awkward. I heard it didn't go super well. I mean, Federer has been asked about it several times, and there's a lot of interviews with Federer where he describes mm-hmm. it. And to Federer, it was just another interview. I mean, sure, I don't think yeah. he, he put much thought into it. Yeah, yeah. So I think, he, if anything, he's just surprised that people keep asking him about it. Right. It's like, why does everyone care about this one writer so much kind of a thing? Yeah. I mean, yeah. what... What I think about is this a book that I love, a series of books by John Hodgman. Do you know these books like Complete World Knowledge? Oh, okay, and yeah. They're like books of fake trivia. And 
at the first one, the first one he'll says, you'll note there's only two references to sports in the entire compendium of world knowledge. <laughs> and he says, if you would like more information about sports, I would refer you to every other aspect of our culture. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I have heard of that before. <laughs> That's good. That's funny. And that's sort of how I feel. Is like if you want yeah. to read more about sports, I would refer you to like every other news website in our world. Media outlet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, knock yourself out, right? Right. That's funny. Um, so we'll, we'll try and get Roger Federer on uh, as a future guest if we can on the show. And we can ask him personally about his time with Wallace. I'll work on that. I'm yeah, sure I'm he wants sure we to can talk get about him, right? it. Yeah, I'm sure that should be no problem. I'm sure he's hardly busy with, you know, two sets of twins and being in the top three rank in the world. <laughs> and he wants to talk about an interview from 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm sure. Some weird dude chewing tobacco, <laughs> sweating profusely into a bandana. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Our next question comes from our friend Mike Miley. Mike is out of... He lives in Louisiana. Louisiana, Louisiana. Yeah, of course. I couldn't think of it. I knew that. New Orleans. Cool. So Mike asks us, uh, he's curious to hear our takes on the DT Max biography of Wallace. Uh, he's also interested to hear about Wallace's complicated relation with with Bart, John Bart. So uh, we did an episode a couple, couple uh, episodes ago with DT Max where we talked to the actual guy who wrote the biography. And we found out, Matt, that you were a great part of that uh, in terms of research and, and contributing. So how do you feel as, as a contributor to the bio? with how it turned out, with how it's been received. Uh, what's sort of your take on that? Well, it's very hard for me to be impartial about that <laughs> Sure, <project> yes. <laughs> because I was, you know, involved in it from very early on, and I read it in draft form. And, you know, I do think it did a lot of important things for Wallace Studies, which yeah, the biggest was partly just to establish a timeline of basic events in Wallace's life. And that he had told so many different stories about what, you know, had actually transpired in his life. And some of that was due to being part of Alcoholics Anonymous, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think he really struggled with how to represent himself as a public figure and stay anonymous when he's clearly not anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think Max succeeded as a journalist in laying out the parameters of, you know, what was going on in his life at certain times. And I do think that someday uh, another biographer will probably come along and do a bigger project mm. with Wallace's life just because it is so compelling, right? Yeah. And that he, you know, the fact that he died at a young age, committed suicide, and had this mental health history that he did, I think it's going to be very compelling, more compelling than a lot of writers' biographies might be. Yeah. So I expect that we will see more biographies in the future of Wallace, but I think mm -hmm. Max did a, a good job, um, especially as the first to get there. Yeah. And, you know, while everyone's still alive and it's fresh in their minds, he's, you know, working from a lot of primary sources. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed reading it immensely because, you know, anything related to Wallace, I'll just get to it as soon as I can. And I ordered it immediately and read it immediately when I got it. So I found it really interesting, really compelling. I mean, I don't think it's for everyone. I don't think it's for necessarily for everyone who has, you know, even read a couple books by Wallace and liked them. I kind of think it's for the person who's read, like, you know, everything Wallace has ever published and is and is kind of obsessed. And, you know, like, that's where I'm at. Um, 
and and there's certainly a few moments in the biography that that you're just like what like the, the whole thing about mary carr was was fascinating and also quite like alarming right some of the stuff about what transpired there and you and i really wanted to know more but some they didn't quite get the development that i might have wanted to see and then you and i kind of have kind of talked about this that you know like wallace had passed away by this point when it came out and he didn't get the chance to you know defend some of these passages or sort of give his side of the story so i'm really curious about some of those bits in the biography yeah, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about a lot of that yeah. stuff where you're just taking one person's word about an intimate relationship and to say, you know, what's her motivation? I don't think she's lying per se, but I do think that uh, it's really hard to portray a relationship when you're 27 years old and you're trying to remember it, you know, 20 years later, hmm. 20 plus years later, and you're talking about day-to-day details of the drama and passion and intensity that's going on <laughs> yeah i think that's very hard to convey especially mm. when you're the only one left to talk about it yeah uh so i you know that that part of it in particular i think is difficult for a biographer yeah um I, especially if you don't have i don't know a lot of other primary sources to go on yeah and really and really you don't want to make a big stink about it i mean like i say mary carr she's got a spouse and she's got mm-hmm. children yeah, and she exactly. doesn't want like does she really want someone going to write about her yeah. past relationships yeah. like it's that's very difficult yeah it's very very delicate for sure and i'm a huge mary carr fan i think she's just a phenomenal poet i love her work so that whole section was really intriguing to me so the next part of his question is about john barth and i honestly don't have a lot to say about <laughs> yeah, that because i don't either i'm not I'm not like a John Barth expert. I'm not even, I haven't even read like Lost in the Funhouse yet, which I mean, I've been meaning to get to and you see it everywhere in Wallace literature, but, and I, and I know sort of the, the premise and my supervisor and I talk about it a lot, um, but I really got, that's a book I got to get to one of these days. Oh, and it's short too, yeah. so you'll like it, mm-hmm. but I, Floating Opera in general, I think a lot of his stuff is really good and it still holds up for me. I don't think that he gets as much critical attention as Wallace does these days. Yeah. Um, and I think there is an element I was going to bring up to say, I think that Wallace applied to grad school to work with him at Johns Mm. Hopkins and was rejected. (laughs) And, and so there's an element where Wallace then gets accepted by University of Arizona and gets a scholarship where a fellowship where he doesn't really have to teach very much and he can just write. And, oh, he just so happens to write a sort of scathing parody slash satire of, you know, Barth's modernism. And I I think Wallace explicitly said at points that he was trying to, you know, sort of kill his forefathers and sort of kill, like actually murder (laughs) postmodernism in a way with that novella. Yes, from Girl Curiouser. Right. And so I think, you know, John Barth is such a, a... lovable like nice guy figure no one would ever really take him on as like a critical forefather to say like oh (laughs) you have to be defeated yeah like you're a villain who needs uh you know dragon slaying or something right and and i think some of that is a personal vendetta that wallace was rejected Uh, Mm. he only applied to a a couple of grad schools interesting and he i think he part of him wanted to write um 
you know, with John Barth and that made him a better writer actually to not do that, to get rejected and go, you know, move to Arizona with people that he had then a chip on his shoulder and something to prove. Mm. So mm. that's that, you know, I take that question very seriously and I wish that mm. I, you know, was a better scholar about uh, all of this. Like I don't really have tons of insight on like for textual references and stuff, yeah. but I know there are some complicated relationships there where Wallace clearly admired him as a very young man mm-hmm. and, you know, then grew to sort of admire him less. Right. Cool. Thanks for that, Mike. Who do we got next? Uh, Dennis Frank. You want to read the first one? Sure. Dennis Frank from Chicago. It's a few parts to this question, but I'll kind of paraphrase it the best I can here. He's asking about, he thinks there's, there's sort of about it, like a tonal shift in infinite jest at about the two thirds mark. And he's wondering if this, if we think that this has to do with him moving to Bloomington, Illinois, uh, rebuilding his life there. Um, he sort of says that his feeling about the book is that the first two thirds is kind of cruel, absurd, ironic, fragmented. In other words, not like super friendly to the reader. Um, but then the book sort of gets a bit more humane and human, uh, especially through, through the character of Don Gately. So his question essentially is, is do we think that the college and community at Bloomington informed the book's final scenes in some way? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, my instinct on that is to say no. Yeah. And that I think that a lot of what we're ascribing to a geographical move is actually just the natural progression of the, of the book itself yeah. and the plot itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we know i wish that there were a better timeline for when all of these sections were written yeah, yeah. And, I'm sh- and i'm sure some scholar will work on that mm-hmm. i think that um david herring's forthcoming book in september which is called david foster wallace form and fiction mm-hmm. i think that has some um, bits of what we're talking about here in terms of when certain sections were written mm-hmm. but we know i mean he published parts of it before he moved from uh, Ithaca to Bloomington and I think that it's some of it is coincidental that he just happened to be writing more about Don Gately when he moved mm-hmm. but also you got to realize like the book was edited extensively after 1994 mm-hmm. and there was a lot of sections that moved around so like the opening section mm-hmm. that's in the final book yeah, it's not the that was not the final opening section. I mean, that was the original opening section was the professional conversationalist mm-hmm. scene. So I think one, it's hard to figure out what the structure of the book was at certain points yeah. in time, yeah. and then to figure out what he was writing. Does it have anything to do with his moving to Bloomington in the middle of it? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's say, really right? <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to say. Yeah. I, you know, he uh, Dennis does bring up a point about. Um, you know, Gately being more like touching and humane parts of the book. Yeah. But a lot of that comes from the, the model of Don Gately, which DT Max reveals that is really a, a real guy who was in a halfway house with right. in, in Boston named Big Craig. Mm-hmm. So I think the ideas from it were formed earlier on. I think it just took him a long time to write that number of pages. Right. Um, yeah. It took him years because he was teaching a little bit, you know, at Emerson and you know then uh, also working on other projects simultaneously so mm-hmm. this is really hard to untangle yeah. what was being written at that point for sure yeah 
And then also like, so we get into kind of like the biographical dilemma, right? Or the intentional fallacy and, and those kinds of complicated critical questions about to what extent does an author's life inform their work and how much should we care about that? And it's, yeah, it's hard to say. Well, it's a serious question for critical biography. Right. And like I said, yeah. I think that a biographer will be invested in this mm -hmm. uh, even greater than we're talking about now. And like I said, DT Max does deal with this issue. Yeah. But I, th I think a lot of what we call critical biography will take up this issue in the future and will look at Wallace's life in even greater detail to see what he was writing at certain times, yeah. you know, and what he was working on. In the halfway house, I know for a fact a lot of that was the the empty plenum, the essay about mm -hmm. David Markson. Oh yeah, which I don't know how revealing that really is, you know, to say like, oh, well, he wrote this in the halfway house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. We got a few questions from our buddy Rob Short down in Florida as well. Uh, I got to put in a plug first for Rob and I have been writing about Infinite Jest during yeah. Infinite Winter over at SimpleRanger.net. Uh, simple, yeah, SimpleRanger.net, which is my, one of my websites. And so I think um, Rob and I have been on the same wavelength for a while yeah. now, but he's kind of going in some different directions here with uh, these questions. Mm -hmm. So put in a plug, go check out SimpleRanger.net and read some of our our stuff about AA and the big book and Infinite Jest. Yeah, it's been great. I've been reading all that. Um, well, thank you for that. But uh, why, don't, why don't you read the first question and we'll try to make sense of it. Cool. So Rob asks, uh, how do we see the influence of Wallace's other formal field of study philosophy as informing his fiction writing? Are there problems which he treats of in both kinds of work? Or do you see the two as more compartmentalized and separate in their themes and applications? So I don't have a huge background in philosophy. Um, I've done a few sort of undergrad courses in it. Um, but obviously there's been a fair bit written on this in critical stuff in secondary, secondary literature recently. An entire book on Wallace and philosophy came out, was it last year, Matt, from Bloomsbury? Yeah, yeah. just gesturing toward reality. Uh, so that would be a good place for anyone who's interested in the topic of philosophy and Wallace to start. Also, uh, critic Allard Dendalk from the Netherlands, I think. He's also a philosopher who, who talks about Wallace in relation to this stuff. And he put out a book recently on the topic as well, too. I haven't had a chance to grab that one yet, though. I think academics especially are interested in this because Wallace did have a formal background in philosophy, especially academic yeah. philosophy and wrote about, I mean, analytic philosophy and wrote about Wittgenstein and wrote about yeah. um, his father, who was a full-time, you know, ac academic yeah. philosopher. Although his father did more of like ethics and, you know, Western mm -hmm. philosophy, like continental philosophy as opposed to analytical. Right. Um, but I do think that academics in particular are interested in this because Wallace is one of the few authors that makes this really explicit in his work. And, you know, we'll use like Richard Rorty title for a title of a short story. Um, mm -hmm. what, what's your take on that from the academic side, Dave? Yeah, I mean, Wallace is, is pretty overt about his engagement with, with specific philosophers, and obviously lots been written about Wallace and Wittgenstein. I don't know. I, I don't have like a, a huge handle on this whole topic, but um, I know that there's quite a lot of really good secondary writing on it for people who are interested in, in checking out more. Well, in... There's a thing I was going to mention. I, I've i really liked this interview that Wallace did with a thing called Speak Magazine, 
and I mm-hmm. put this on my website last year. Rob and I have talked about this, so I know he knows it. But in that interview, Wallace says something like when he was starting out and he was kind of showing off in his fiction. Yeah, in Broom of the System. Yeah, and he sort of didn't really understand why people would want to read his work and right. that he thought like, you know, he was doing something that was really technical and showing off his knowledge of technical semantics. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then he realized later that people read for emotional reasons. Mm-hmm. And that if he had... More human reasons. Yeah, and if he had a choice between showing off this, like, ability in, in the technical side versus, like, connecting with someone at an emotional level, he would throw out the technical side to save the emotional side. Right. Yeah. So I think that idea of him working in, you know, oh, this is the, you know, Hillary Putnam's ideas about morality versus am I really going to like draw this character that pulls at your heartstrings. I think mm-hmm. that he would throw out the philosophy to keep the emotional connection yeah. with like humanity. Yeah. And that's really hard. And I don't think they're totally mutually exclusive either. I think even in the pale King, there's some, no, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, I think he marries the two things pretty well. Um, did you, did you ever read fate time and language? His, um, Oh yes, I did. His thesis. Yes, I did. Yeah. And in fact, how'd you, how was your experience reading that book? Well, I mean, it's you have to be a philosopher or you know exactly right <laughs> taking classes in it to make sense of it. But yeah, I, it, was, it was a pretty hard slog for me. I I really thought, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Wallace would be interested in something like Richard Taylor's fatalism. For yeah. for one, he was really interested in it from a mathematical point of view, where there is an, yeah. an opportunity to prove, you know, to take a proof and find an error in it or to find Mm -hmm. you know a a flaw in logical reasoning i think that appealed to him as a young man to say oh i can take this famous bit of philosophy and tear it down using my really big brain Mm -hmm. (laughs) but but also i think on the other hand i think he was able to use that as a a way to thumb his nose at his father you know to say you're gonna you're gonna write about this kind of wishy-washy ethics and morality and i'm gonna just deal with mathematics Mm -hmm. so i i think there's a lot going on with why he wrote about richard taylor's fatalism uh when he was 21 22 years old but part of it was just Mm -hmm. because he was really smart and he was able to actually understand it and you know uh, live in that world for a while but Mm -hmm. you know rob's question about was it compartmentalized i think Mm -hmm. yes because wallace said you know, he could have written philosophy the rest of his life, but he actually felt yeah. like he was using more of his brain to write fiction. That's right. Yeah. So uh, one of Rob's other questions, which relates to philosophy as well, sort of, is cage match. Derrida versus Wittgenstein. Who walks out alive? And you had a very clear answer for this, Matt. To me, it's no debate. It's definitely Wittgenstein. <laughs> because? Wittgenstein was a veteran of two different wars. He looked very grizzled. He got into a match with uh, Karl Popper where he pulled out a hot poker, supposedly, (laughs) apparently. I I think Derrida is being a a Frenchman. He's got that going against him where he would probably just, he would probably just capitulate and lay down and give up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If we have any French listeners, I apologize on behalf of Matt. 
uh, in the great concavity for that comment. Hey, but I mean, but I mean, yeah, Derry Doss seems like he was a pretty chill dude. Um, so I'll, bu- I'll buy your argument on this one, Matt. Hey, if I'm hanging out at a cafe and we're drinking wine, I would rather be with Derrida. But if we're okay. if we're in a cage <laughs> match, I'm taking Wittgenstein every lick of the way. All right. What about you? All in for 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 big W. <laughs> what about me on that question? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I'll. I don't know a whole lot about Wittgenstein's biography, so I, I take your answer. We'll go with that. <laughs> Well, I think even philosophically, Derrida is a little softer than Vick. Wittgenstein is very convinced of his own ideas. So I think that that, right. that helps his case. Yeah, cool. All right, we got some questions from a listener whose ha- handle is Poor York. Before we get to that, I just want to say how much I really like the idea of Poor York. And I've been thinking about mm-hmm. this a lot because... Yeah, fellow women jest. I mean, I just really like that Wallace chose poor York. And I really like the idea of that scene from Hamlet. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a thing going on right now at the ransom center here in Austin with, uh, it's Shakespeare and they've got first folios and drafts. And I was looking at the oh, cool. second folio. I was looking at that scene in Hamlet and the first folio, they have three different first mm-hmm. folios of it here in Austin right now. Wow. And just thinking about how how you know beautiful that scene is when Hamlet recognizes his old friend, and it's sort of like in our modern age where you recognize an old friend when someone tags on Facebook, and you <laughs> see like I haven't thought about this person forever, and now they're dead. And yeah. I think the modern equivalent is you know something like that where you haven't thought about someone, but you grew up with them, and they meant a lot to mm-hmm. you, and you've lost touch with yeah. them, and now. I just find it really moving. I really like hmm. that Shakespeare used that and that Wallace used that. So Yeah. And while you may not be like literally holding their skull the way Hamlet is, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, there's something to that. Big ups to poor York. Keep it up, whatever your real name is. Yeah. Why don't you read the first question, Dave? So we got one about Wallace being a meme and have we experienced that? And then the other one is, oh yeah, are we a part of other literary communities? Yeah, I think it's they're pretty related too. So the first part for me about Wallace being a meme or being like just about buzz or hype or something is something, you know, I've dealt with for a long time. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, also with Bolaño a little bit. So this gets to the second part. Like I'm part of the literary community of Bolaño. Mm -hmm. And the true test is does the person to me last longer than like a year or two? And there's a lot of books that get buzz and hype and people talk about them. And then like a year or two later, you don't hear about them ever again. Mm-hmm. And so for me, Wallace has much, much more staying power than that. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, longevity is one clue. Uh, and really, you shouldn't have to convince anyone. And so that has implications for like a longer standing community, right? Oh, of course. I mean, a pension has been going on, you know, for 40 years that there have been people reading him and discussing him in bars and late at night. And it has nothing to do with, you know, is the book, is the book any good or not? Like, yes, of course it is. But there's a lot of good books that don't have this kind of community around it. So that to me is like a meme is like a one-off. Right. I like how you sort of wetted those two questions together. <laughs> what about you? What, what do you think about like the hype, the buzz, one big meme? Um, but there, I mean, there is this kind of chatter online on various kind of parody sites about David Foster Wallace and sort of like the young hipster that reads him. I had a friend 
comment to me recently that I was like a character. So we were talking about the podcast that I had a podcast about Wallace. He told me that I was like a character out of a Douglas Copeland novel. Hmm. Cause we were like going to play, ho- we were playing hockey, ice hockey at the time. And I'm like also into board games and like, all, like kind of a diversity of stuff. Right. And he's like, you just, you just don't, you just seem like you're this character in this book. And I didn't know whether to take that as like a compliment or as a diss. Hmm. So that kind of goes to poor York's question here about this idea of Wallace as a meme or Wallace is kind of, you know, some kind of like cultural icon that has like a, has certain connotations that go along with him. You know, that like young men read his work and young men who have particular interests or view the world in a certain way. But I think we've seen quite a bit of diversity, you know, just even on this podcast with female guests and male guests um, at conferences. There's a great diversity of people who are interested in his work, not just young dudes or whatever. So do you, do you think that's there's something to that, that Wallace is just kind of this like this meme, this, you know, this guy that you can sort of people can point to and say like, oh, if you read him, then you're definitely like a hipster and you do these other things. I think there's some shallowness to it <laughs> that is inherent in any big group, right? If you get a big group of people, there's mm-hmm. some of them who are maybe not right. authentic, who are just in it for you know a little bit of buzz and then they disappear but i think there's plenty of other people yeah that it's not you know like you and me it's not just a meme like we're temporarily interested in i think it's something that's you know it's a deep uh you know connection and it's more complicated than that so yeah i get that there's hype and there's buzz i think there's a whole like whole conversation to be had about that i do think there's been more of that since 2008 you know there was there was maybe less of that before wallace died uh that there's been a lot more attention come to him so people use him as sort of a a buzzword of like oh infinite just this infinite just that and like you you carry around the book yeah but i'm more interested in the second part of this question which is really about like are you part of any other literary communities and um the fact is yes i am Hmm. And, you know, I mentioned Bolaño earlier. I tried to start a, a Bolaño mailing list in 2008 and, you know, had a smaller group, not that many people interested. Uh, but I did start a blog back when right. 2666 came out. And through that, I've, I've met tons of other people who are really into Bolaño and don't really overlap into um, David Foster Wallace, per se. Oh, yeah. So cool. I... That's one. The other one, I am a member of now, like a paying member of the John Updike Society. And the John Updike Society is a little more mature than the Wallace Society. I mean, there's no such thing as like a David Foster Wallace Society that you can join yet. Um, Updike died a few months after Wallace. And, you know, he had a longer career, obviously, and had already donated a lot of his archives to Harvard and they actually have like a print journal called the John Updike Review. And they also bought Ch- uh, John Updike's childhood home and are in the process of, of restoring that and making it into like a museum. So I think that society in particular is a little farther down the road in maturity than Wallace's. And uh, Greg Carlisle wrote a keynote speech for a Wallace conference in 2009 in Liverpool, mm-hmm. where he sort of called for such a thing, you know, of like, it's time for a David Foster Wallace society yeah. that actually has like a print journal and, you know, as an academic sponsor at a campus. 
And, you know, even though we have like two years now of the David Foster Wallace conference, we're not there with like a David Foster Wallace society that is a, a academic society. Some people and I at the Paris conference talked about starting the David Foster Wallace Society. One of the organizers, Lucy, her name was, she's writing a PhD on Wallace and other big novelists like Adam Levin. Um, so that was kind of something we were tossing around. But I don't really know what goes into actually formally making a literary society and all the things that you have to do to maintain it and whatnot. But that'd be cool to see at some point in the future. Well, I don't think it's that much effort per se, but I think it will you know, make some academics career at some point and they will definitely do it. So, you know, Wallace is still new to a lot of people who are in charge of academic departments, but we'll see that grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not part of any other literary communities. Um, I I mean, I don't think there's an author that I would point to that I that I could say that I'm anywhere even close to as interested in as I am with Wallace, Um, which is not to say that there aren't other writers that I love and who I follow very closely. Um, But I definitely wouldn't do a podcast about any other writer, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, the number two is really Bolaño, and then right, yeah. after that, really John Updike, and it sounds really even bad and pretentious, and I'm self-conscious of even saying this, but, you know, that's who I am, so what can I do? Oh, <laughs> uh, you're good, Matt. Awesome. So James Martin asks, why does Wallace use the names of real people for his fictional characters so frequently? Uh, he mentions people like Michael Pemulus, Kate Gompert, Evan Ingersoll. Uh, we talked a little bit about John Wayne, John No Relation Wayne. Um, he feels like there must be more to this habit than just liking the way the name sounds, but maybe that's all there is to it. So I don't know too much about the Kate Gompert thing, but someone actually named Kate Gompert sued over this. Do you know any? Do you know more about that, Matt? Yeah. So there was a real Kate Gompert that. Wallace knew growing up up in Illinois, and she did take offense to the way... Yeah, she was portrayed negatively in his book and sued him, but that case was quickly thrown out. I mean, there was no basis for her to sue on, and there was no, like, injury that had been caused to her by this so that she really didn't have a chance. But the question (laughs) about, you know... Naming in general, Wallace has this predilection for almost kind of Thomas Pinchonian names where he loves really kind of wild names that are more crazy than reality. (laughs) Right. Um, But I think, you know, some of that is up to Wallace to say definitively why he, you, you know, didn't change names. And I think some of it might be due to this like, oh, this is such a crazy idea that no one would believe it's even real, Right. but it's in fiction, and yet it is a real name, even though it's used in fiction. Uh, I don't know why, you know, Michael Pimulus, he brought up Pimulus. <laughs> that was not a real person, but it was a name of an album that that was used in the 1980s that his friend Jake Jackson introduced him to. But, you know, in terms of what is a real, a real name, I think it's also a character, a problem if you're writing a thousand-page novel you have all these different characters, like you need a lot of names. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you probably, and he had lists of dozens and dozens of names. And he's like, probably at some point just adopted like a dozen real names and said, ah, just leave them. It'd be funnier. Maybe it was funny. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what do you think about that, Dave? What do you think about the real names? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to write, like in a book like Infinite Jest, where there are literally hundreds of characters 
I mean, it makes sense that you would draw from, you know, a n- names that you know in real life or some kind of amalgam of names that you have heard in real life. And like you said, I like that idea of the, the, the Pinchonian names, where some of them are just really off the wall. Like um, in Crying of Lot 49, Oedipa. Uh, M- Moss. Oedipa Moss, yeah. Like, like some of the names in that book are just are wild and hilarious. And I don't think Wallace quite always gets as wacky as Pynchon does with some of his character names. But uh, this the person James Martin asking this question also brings up the protagonist from the story The Suffering Channel, Skip Atwater. And that in uh, the, in U.S. history, there's actually a Lieutenant Skip Atwater involved with investigating military applications of ESP. So the idea that Wallace is drawing from historical stuff um, and from pop culture stuff is, I think it, it says something about the social commentary that he's interested in too, right? Like he talks about Marlon Brando quite a bit in Infinite Jest in the 1960 Arizona scene. James Incandenza's father does. Yeah, I don't know how much he's really referencing real people per se as just like, you know, using the names as something that sounds, you know, without, I don't know, sounds convincing, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah, yeah. Skip, skip, skip Atwater didn't, to me, I didn't recognize that name and it didn't take no, me out me of either. the story per se. It right. sounded like a, jur- a journalist name and it is like, <laughs> it sounds like a journalist name. So he's like, hey, Skip, that sounds like a good name. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe Wallace just did like the way a certain names sound. Um, I don't know if he had a deeper theoretical you know, commentary he was going for necessarily with those, but an, an interesting thing to think about for sure. Well, if someone does have that, like write into us and let yeah, us know. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Um, the next one is from Alex Yard. Alex Yard. Uh, his question is about the deliberate continuous references to anatomy terminology in Infinite Jest. Yeah. And, you know, that question to me just has to do with like, the level of detail Wallace was interested in, you know, he is going to not just say like the word arm. He's going to say, is it the fibula and the tibula and like the name of the bones in there? And that's for him a way as a writer, I think to be more specific. So I I don't know that there's a lot to like Wallace's references of anatomy otherwise than like he liked the, the... than just his like encyclopedic approach to everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you could also, you could ask the same question about, his stuff with pharmacology. Like I remember the first time reading Infinite Jest and just being like absolutely blown away with like the technicality of his discussions about pharmaceuticals and, and drug names and everything like that. And just being like, what is this guy? Like, where is he getting this stuff from? You know? No, it was very, it's very impressive. I mean, as a reader, I think most people are impressed with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a thematic thing going on there too, where, where Hal is, is this encyclopedic character and then so you've also got a narrator who is kind of in line with the way that Hal thinks about the world in very maximalist terms. Yeah, I think it definitely fits with the character. You know, I mean, if he was writing about someone who was ignorant, then he wouldn't do that. But it fits very much with Hal being like eidetic memory. Alex also asks if this anatomy has ever been tracked in an entire sort of read through the way that Corey has done color tracking. And I don't think, I can't think of anything quite exactly, but I know there are some academic articles about uh, bodies and, and anatomy in Infinite Jest, specifically uh, the stuff about kind of the abject, uh, the grotesqueries of, you know, like the gorilla forearms of the tennis players and Oren's side of his body. It's disproportionate. So there is some stuff out there on that. 
So Alex also asks us about the existing film adaptations of Wallace's work. Are they worth watching or is ignorance bliss? Do they bring something worthwhile to the table or is it better to preserve the experience of reading Wallace's source material in the written word? So we've talked about brief interviews with Hideous Men, the film on the podcast before, and obviously quite a bit about the end of the tour. Is there anything else filmically that we haven't talked about, Matt, that exists? I don't think so. Not really. I mean, there is the potential for more, and there's a guy named Francesco Marcioni who is making, who is going to make an adaptation of Oblivion, the short story, yeah, right. into a short film, and you know, there's projects like that. But in terms of feature films, I assume that Alex here is just asking about the brief interviews with Hideous Men movie, which yeah. I think if you skipped it, you would be okay, and I think. The end of the tour movie I do think is really good. Um, I, I really like that movie. I think it was made with a lot of, you know, love and passion, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's not an adaptation of Wallace's work. Right. Yeah. It's a totally different thing. So I think we will probably see more, you know, projects made of Wallace's stuff. I would not be surprised to see someone tackle more infinite jest stuff you know there's a lot of little projects around yeah. infinite jest um a lot of the filmography stuff has been done mm -hmm. um i would love to see someone tackle tennis and the feral prodigy and make a film out of that that would be great i love that section uh it would be great yeah <laughs> I, and i think you know wallace always said the most filmic thing that he'd written was uh, little expressionless animals mm, that'd be a great that'd be a great film i think that could be a good film and i think someone could take on pieces of broom of the system yeah i think yeah, broom yeah. Of the system is more visually funny mm -hmm. in some ways uh and it's more doable than infinite jest in two hours like you yeah. can't do no. you can't do infinite jest in two hours no at of all. course um, I would love to see like the Monty Python guys come back and take on the Norman Bombardini restaurant scene yeah. in like the kind well, of like the meaning of life sort of way. Yeah, well, Wallace <laughs> sort of stole it from them to begin yeah, with. Yeah, so. exactly. So seeing it come full circle would be pretty funny. I My post, I think it was last week or the week before on Infinite Winter, was about just vomiting uh, in Infinite Jest and how in that sort of 75 page, page section, there were about four or five different scenes of people throwing up. And how right. I think that's like actually the funniest thing in film to me is that like fire hose kind of projectile <laughs> vomit. And I was just cracking yes. up while I was writing it and documenting all. And I talked about Monty Python there. So if you think that stuff's funny, you can go check out my post from a couple weeks ago there. <laughs> but, you know, the implication of Alex's question to me is like it's almost a non-question because you know, I felt like so obsessed with Wallace's stuff. Like, of course, I'm going to see everything that comes out. And I'm going to, yeah. like, Google every Vimeo creation that some amateur has done. Mm -hmm. I want to see it all, of course. Like, right. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. if you're as crazy as me, it's not. It's a given. You're going to seek all of this stuff out. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you're on the border, it's like, I, you know, I encourage you just to cross over that border and just nerd it out. Yeah. Totally. And then there's like a lot of tertiary stuff too, like um, the Decemberist music video for Calamity right. Song, you know, like the Eschaton re recreation. Um, right. And little like more subtle things like that that you can find hanging around. So obviously oh, totally. those are of interest to me to check out. So we have a few remaining questions from um, Robert Faulkner, Robert Colby, no relation Faulkner. Um, <laughs> 
the first one is about reading Infinite Jest on a Kindle or electronic copy. Mm. Um, and, you know, I... Would we condone or disapprove of this practice and why? Should I buy a physical copy in addition to the electronic one? You're a paper-only guy, Matt? No, 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 not at all. You're both both end? Yes, both end. Yeah, I've read, a, I've read Infinite Jest both on an iPad and physical book. Now I'm reading it physical book again. Uh, there's advantages to both, I think, for sure. But I do. I think there's something to be said for reading the physical paper copy the first time. Would you agree that that's part of like the experience of carrying around this three-pound novel? Yes, I think Wallace originally intended it that way. Yeah. I mean, he obviously wrote it before the advent of e-books. Yeah. But I do think that the people who are reading it on a Kindle or an iPad or even on your phone, I know several people who have read it on an iPhone. Yeah, just on their phone, right? Yeah, yeah and I think that that, to me, that doesn't take away from it too much. No, I don't think so. So I think the fact that you've read it, that's what counts. And I would even add to that and say that if you listen to the audio book of it, and you listen to all the endnotes, that counts too. Mm-hmm. I actually started listening to the audiobook last week just out of pure interest, like to hear how, how it was read. It's and pretty so good. I, and so I'm like about 50 pages in or so, I think. The the Canon Eredity part was really good, I thought, the way that the narrator read it. There's a lot of like very deliberate pronunciations <laughs> of certain sentences. No, I think it's good, and I think that counts. Um when it first came out, the audiobook didn't have the end notes, and that was hard to endorse. But now, yes, yeah. now they did record that. They went back and recorded it all. So I think that counts if you read it that way or listen mm. to it. Is it like a separate audio file, like the like the last part? I know it's like fifty six hours, and there's eight different parts that you download or something like that. Is one of those just the end notes? I think so. Yes. Yeah, because there's like a little voice that comes in and says like one. When there's a when, when there's an end note, right? It's it's definitely unwieldy, but yeah, it, at least it exists. Yeah, totally. I think I think there's always the question of can I read this book without the end notes, and I think the answer is no. I think they're essential to the text. Oh, of course, and I mean mm-hmm. to me, if you skip those, you mm-hmm. you know you're you're doing something wrong to yeah. begin with. <laughs> like in life, your failure at life, essentially, right? Uh, I wouldn't go that far, but you, you need to you need to just stop what you're doing and go back and read the notes. But yeah, so I don't really recommend you know I, that you not read the electronic way. I think it's probably ideal to read it on paper. But if you if you need to read it on your phone or your Kindle or your iPad, it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely some advantages and convenience for those things for sure. Like when I was the second time I read Jest, I read it on iPad so that I could make use of the highlighting features and like the word searching and all that kind of things that regular books don't afford. Um, so for research purposes, I think the electronic stuff offers some some good tools. Oh, the searching in particular. I mean, I like yeah. the, the dictionary feature that's yep. built into the Kindle, but the the searching i mean that that sort of changed my life whenever I, I got a pdf of infinite jest in like 2003 and yeah. i was able to search it and i was like wow this is a lot easier to look up a passage now rather than flipping through a thousand page book trying mm-hmm. to find a passage yeah that's tough so i mean i i recommend just reading everything all the time at the same time mm-hmm. that's my recommendation mm-hmm. cool uh, one more question here, and this will pretty much do it, I think, from Herr Jager on Twitter. 
Did David Foster Wallace ever begin writing his version of Amen Setter's Luck by William H. Gass? I think DT Max wrote about this. Any thoughts on that, Matt? I am not sure. Hmm. I think there is some allusion to this and there is some work on William H. Gass that Wallace is doing in Girl with mm-hmm. Curious Hair and in... Um, so yes, I do think that he was dealing with Almond Setter's luck. He loved the book. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not an expert on this William H. Gass topic, but my yeah. friend my friend Stephen Shakenberg is. So if you want to look up a good William H. Gass website, um, look up Stephen Shakenberg and William H. Gass, and you'll find it. Um, I, you know, I think the part of Westward, the course of empire takes its way that mm-hmm. refers to um, Cynthia Ozick has been overlooked. And I think oh, that, yeah. and I think the part uh, of Wallace's writings in general, especially of that time that refer to Omen Setter's luck, that's also been neglected. So Harry mm-hmm. Yager, it's a good question. And I wish I had a better answer for you. <laughs> uh, we take it seriously. But if you haven't read Omen Setter's luck, it's really great. I haven't. Uh, it's a really great novel. I, I highly recommend it. Um, cool. Uh, I did see a note online that Wallace's short story, John Billy, has a gas-inspired dialect uh, from Girl with Curious Hair. So that could be something to check out. Indeed. And it, and in fact, that's you know where I get my title of my website, simpleranger.net, is from that story, John Billy, where he says, was me supposed to tell Simple Ranger? Oh, nice. So nice. I didn't, I didn't yes, catch the reference. Uh, there's also a funny reference with Omen Setter's Luck that I thought about back when I was watching Breaking Bad. And that, oh, yeah. um, William H. Gass said that when he wrote that book, he was in a kind of a fugue state. Mm-hmm. And in Breaking Bad, it's the funny part where Walter White claims that he goes into a fugue state. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know much about like, the history of it i know that kind of like wallace's first book uh girl with curious i mean a uh, broom of the system, broom of the system. it's yeah. it's set in a a fictional version of ohio right so the, and you know broom of the system has the great ohio desert and mm-hmm. there's a god the god right the god <laughs> um, so there's a town in omen setter's luck that is uh it's set in ohio and it's got a town priest mm-hmm. and to me that priest i think his name is jethro jethro ferber it reminds me of this character from a kind of lost novel called the last western and i have a whole nother story about that but i think there's some other similarities that are sort of around wallace it's hard to say how that book really affected him and his work to me i mean i would love to read more about it i know you know, it does have like this kind of different style than Wallace wrote in a lot. I know they both used unreliable narrators in certain cases, but I, I don't, you know, if you have more to say about that, I would encourage you to write us in and, and school us on it because we're, I'm clearly not an expert on it. I'm definitely unschooled on that topic. <laughs> um, but I know Wallace did like the book a lot and it's easy to see why because it's one of William H. Gass's best books, I think. Mm. Cool. I'll have to check that out. Oh, finally, we have one last question from Colby Faulkner through Twitter. 
any recommended music to listen to while reading Infinite Jest? What works for you guys? I think we had a bit of back and forth with him there, but it's fun to talk about here too. Uh, you mentioned the Mountain Goats as a as a top band choice for reading David Foster Wallace. Right, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, love those guys. Um, I find with reading, I can I can usually listen to stuff that has lyrics, but a lot of people can't, and so the the genre of post rock is pretty good. So bands like Rachel's Tortoise, Godspeed You Black Emperor, Do Make Say Think. Minimalist composers like Philip Glass and, and Max Richter are good for just reading in general. Um, I think because of like Wallace's writing style that, that does require quite a bit of attention, listening to, you know, like metal or rap music might be a challenge to do simultaneously. But Robin O'Neill might be able to speak to that with the rap music, especially because she's a big hip hop fan. So maybe we'll have to hit her up on Twitter about that. For sure. I remember reading the book, and uh, the second time I read the book, I listened to, to a lot of the French band Air. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Because it was a very... Electronic you know, outfit. Yeah, just kind of ambient background mm-hmm. noise, but I liked having it on at the time, so yeah. I have a lot yeah. of memories of having that on. Mm, cool. Sigur Rós is a band that would probably work well with that in that sense, too. Sort of ethereal, ambient stuff. Maybe Parquet Courts. Yeah, Parquet Courts. We're always going to recommend them for sure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Matt. Well, it has been great talking to you and going through some of these questions. Uh, we want to thank everybody who wrote in. Thank you so much. We didn't quite get a chance to read all of the questions, but we did definitely get to at least one question from each person who asked. So thank you again for those. Matt, it's been fun talking to you about these, man. Yeah, as always. Thanks to everyone who wrote in questions. We really we think we have the best listeners in the world. So thanks for listening to the show. We really appreciate the response. Yeah, absolutely. That's great, Matt. If people want to ask us further questions, um, where can they hit us up online? We're at Concavity Show on Twitter and on Instagram, same, mm-hmm. and on Concavity Show at gmail.com. I think that's right. Is that it, Dave? You got it, man. You nailed it. All right. All, all three of the places are correct. Boom. Until <laughs> next time. Until next time. <laughs> Hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. Creeps in a call out of the blue from an old, old friend. Are you there? Sorry about that, man. I'm doing my best here. I don't know what's going on. I, I pay... $85 a month for Wi-Fi and <laughs> feels like a total joke. Damn it, man. It's like pulling teeth to like record an episode here. <laughs>